you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Are there important innovators and inventors in public schools? Can being an engineer prepare you for the classroom? How can public school bring project-based learning into every class? Join us as we speak with a true educational inventor from the mountains of Western North Carolina. You know, I'm going to be the one that says, all right, what's our big vision here? And how can we make sure that we align what we want to do with where we turn the Titanic, so to speak, so that we can ultimately get to the destination that we're we're after. So, so yes, I can definitely relate to having that. And whether it was the artistic background or just something else, it set me apart in how I was able to approach and solve problems. And so that's what I also try to emphasize with my students on a daily basis is whatever skill set you've got, we, we want you to bring that to the table in a collaborative environment. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast, where we bring fresh perspectives at the intersection of innovation, education, and parenting. You have probably heard of 3D printing by now, and possibly even the term maker education. And if you're a teacher, you have certainly heard the term project-based learning. For those not familiar with the term, imagine going to school, but instead of sitting at desks in rows doing worksheets, you spend the day building catapults writing new computer games, or growing a garden. Project-based learning is a rich canvas on which to hang all of those seemingly disconnected facts such as torque and momentum, or cell division. However, in school, educators often worry about meeting standards such as Common Core, or getting students ready to pass their yearly competency tests. Yet the very best educators out there know that something is amiss within a system when we begin teaching to the test rather than helping students learn how to learn. Ben Owens is just such an educator, but he isn't teaching at a private school. He isn't talking about projects in a homeschool environment. Ben is a high school teacher in the public school system at a high school in Western North Carolina, Tri-County Early College. Their whole school has switched to a project-based learning model for the high school years in conjunction with taking classes at the co-located community college. You absolutely have to hear Ben's story. So my guest today is Ben Owens. Ben is a teacher at the Tri-County Early College in Murphy, North Carolina, and they were recently recognized as a school of innovation in North Carolina. Uh, before he was a teacher there, though, uh, Ben worked for 20 years as a mechanical engineer with DuPont. And while he was there as a teacher at uh, Tri-County Early College, uh, just a couple of years ago, he was one of 12 Hope Street Group National Teacher Scholars. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about the switch from mechanical engineer to being a teacher. Why the switch? 
Yeah, well, it was a it was a pretty significant changing career, as you can ask my wife, she would agree with that. What I was finding as an engineer, and and I worked in facilities in South Carolina and Tennessee, Alabama, California, West Virginia, but I kept seeing the same problem, and that was where we were trying to hire uh, talent. Um, this was for operators or mechanics, uh, even engineers, uh, lab technicians, and uh, we struggled with finding that talent in the local talent pool. Um, and it wasn't because we couldn't find people who had good on paper um, qualifications. It was because, um, you know, DuPont being a, a pretty prestigious science company, we, we, you know, were pretty picky about who we were selecting. And we would put them in scenarios where, you know, you're in a scenario and how would you solve this problem? And we found it. Uh, striking the number of people who just could not solve simple problems, could not collaborate, didn't have oral and uh, written communication skills that we needed. Um, and that was a chronic issue that, that we kept seeing. Um, and, you know, we, we overcame it by, you know, hiring folks and training them and doing whatever we needed. Um, but it just, something stuck in the back of my brain that, you know, this is a problem that I'm seeing all across the country. Uh, so ultimately, uh, in my final assignment, when I was up in uh, West Virginia, I decided, you know, I'm going to do something about this and went to graduate school and got my teaching credentials, a master's in teaching, and then found the early college here in North Carolina and made the switch and have never looked back. I love what I do. So it's curious that you had that experience because that actually mirrors an experience that I had. Uh, I went to work after graduate school. Mm -hmm. uh, in physics, I, I went to work for the Navy here in California. And whenever we went out looking for people to uh, hire in, I mean, I'm most of my experience has been with hands on laboratory work. And I would often find that even graduate students coming out of graduate school, when we put them in the lab, could not, like you said, they couldn't solve certain kinds of problems. I mean, if it was related to their PhD thesis, you know, they would know sure. something about it. But if, if it was this tangential thing, it's like they couldn't figure out how to uh, navigate around these obstacles. And as a result, we found it very difficult to hire qualified people in our research lab. And I had the same thing. I, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, we got to do something about this. <laughs> right. So you and I both exactly. ended up in education uh, from a similar path, and you ended up in a school and uh, what Debbie and I do is paraeducational. But uh, mm -hmm. tell me a little bit then, let's rewind and let's go back. How'd you mm -hmm. end up as an engineer and what was your experience like just as a young student, say, K-12? Uh, uh, yeah, well, it's it's a bit of an interesting story there. I grew up the son of artists. Uh, my father, in fact, was a fairly well-known uh, artist. He was started an art department at a small college here in Northeast Georgia, where I grew up. And so I just had that background in my form of teenage rebellion, uh, so to speak, was rather than go to art school, which everybody assumed I was going to do because I somehow inherited those genes, <laughs> I decided I'm going to go do something completely different. So I signed up for physics, having never had a <laughs> class in my life. Uh, but that was what I put down on the little checkbox. What's going to be your college major? So I, this one looks good, short. And so uh, I launched into that. And as it turned out, other than the, the first couple semesters were a little frightening, but uh, 
I got into it and loved it. And then that led to me also getting a mechanical engineering degree and then working in industry and working for, you know, a, a major multinational corporation was just truly exciting. Just really, you know, being able to collaborate with some really great minds from, you know, across the world. The travel I was able to do, the projects I was able to work on, the people I was able to work with was just truly a fascinating uh, and enjoyable experience. But it, you know, there was always that kind of thing that was tugging at me. And that was, I, I think my ultimate calling was to get into teaching. And that's where I'm so glad that I made the switch. Not that I disliked what I did before, but I truly, truly enjoy working with students and and changing lives on a daily basis. So I'm going to take a rabbit trail here because I, I can't help it. Okay. <laughs> so you said you inherited the creativity genes, and <laughs> I I have this this question in the back of my mind because I've been, I've watched physicists and mm-hmm. mathematicians and even engineers, and the ones that truly distinguish themselves tend to have some sort of side hobby that has right. an artistic flair to it Mm -hmm. have you had a similar experience i I have and you know for all of my colleagues that that uh former dupont colleagues that i'm (laughs) that that may somehow get a hold of this uh podcast i let me apologize up front but (laughs) i will will make a broad generalization that uh, a lot of the folks that i worked with super super smart people i mean just really just outstanding engineer, engineers. But one of the problems I would tend to run into was kind of that big picture. All right, where are we going to land this plane? You know, I understand, you know, you guys truly know how to fly the plane and can do loops around me, but I'm interested on how we're ultimately going to land this thing. And having that kind of big picture and being able to relate kind of different perspectives, that was what helped me succeed in my previous career. And I got the reputation for being able to do that. And, the, and that led to my advancement in DuPont. And I still use those those same skills even today when at my school, we start talking about specific issues or whatever. You know, I'm going to be the one that says, all right, what's our big vision here? And how can we make sure that we align what we want to do with where we turn the Titanic so to speak, so that we can ultimately get to the destination that we're we're after. So, so yes, I can definitely relate to having that. And whether it was the artistic background or just something else, it set me apart in how I was able to approach and solve problems. And so that's what I also try to emphasize with my students on a daily basis is whatever skill set you've got, we, we want you to bring that to the table in a collaborative environment. So I'm I'm curious. So I'm going to poke a little bit. Do you have any uh-huh. like like do you play the piano or draw or paint or any kind of things that people might not like you you wouldn't mm-hmm. think about turning it into a career, but it's one of those sure. outlets. Yes. Well, you know, I I do I do, I do paint and draw. I doodle all the time when you look <laughs> at my notes. Uh, people are often frightened by ah, uh, because it's it's got doodles everywhere. I, I like to work in my wood shop. Uh, so I'm all all the time trying to create. And it's, it's just that for me, it's it's a way to kind of that pin up energy that I've got. I just like to go out and, and create uh, a tangible thing that I can put my hands on or an actual drawing or something that I can look at. Uh, I probably need to do more of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I've got to do. It's it's I find very therapeutic for me 
and it helps, you know, that other side of the brain to kind of kick in and, and spawn some ideas. Um, so yeah, all the time. I, I, I wouldn't admit it. When I was a kid, I learned to play the piano and I tried playing the guitar a little bit. And I, I, I wasn't an artist like some of my friends were an artist, but I was always drawn to that. And over time, I gravitated to what you talked about, you know, the wood shop and building things. Mm-hmm. And whenever I build something, I, I have this thing that I want it to look beautiful. And right. I don't know where that came from, but it's always kind of been there. And But that mm-hmm. idea of going out and building something with my hands, I just can't turn that off. It's just so much fun. And I, like you, I enjoy working uh, in, in my uh, wood shop uh, mm-hmm. on different projects. So tell me, do you think that's related at all to, like, do you bring that into the classroom at all? Definitely. And one of the things our school does is we're full project-based learning school. So we, and we do a lot of student choice and voice. So often what I will do is I'll simply set up a, an initial scenario and say, all right, this is the context of the project I'm asking you guys to do, and then give them the full freedom to create, you know, whatever that is to satisfy the, the ultimate requirements that I'm, I'm asking for in a, in a project. And then through the creation of that thing, and whether that's, you know, a uh, the, the video iMovie clip or uh, an actual tangible product, like we had some seven of my uh, students created a full-size trebuchet that they uh, competed in a local, uh, what's called a pumpkin chunking recently, and uh, flung a pumpkin 435 feet, I think was the... <laughs> All right. So these are seven... How, seven... how big? How... I just want to know how tall was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's um, we had to get a trailer to to haul it around on. It's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty significant. I mean, it's probably I want to say four meters long by three meters high. It's a floating arm trebuchet. If you want to Google what that looks like, and they they took the initial design and kind of modified it to meet their needs. Um, and this was seven young ladies in my physics uh, class. That, oh, that's that, even better. That's yeah, even better. It was truly, and I, I think I could bring everyone in and they would say this was life-changing because some of these students had very little confidence in their ability to pull something like this off, very uh, reluctant to kind of step out there. And after this exercise, they, I mean, they are rocking it. They truly have a level of appreciation and understanding of physics now. Uh, and that was my challenge is, you know, this is more than just, you know, fun and games and making a nice trebuchet. You got to be able to describe the kinematics of it. You got to be able to tell me how are Newton's laws applying to this and so forth. And that's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And so that's just one example of the, the types of things that I try to do to engage the students and have them bring their skills and talents and match things that they care about to the curriculum that I'm teaching. Because if I can do that, then I'm really teaching. Uh, if I'm just up lecturing away about abstract theories and formula, you know, I'm doing them a disservice. I love it. And, uh, you know, so this hits a couple of interesting stereotypes, you know, because you're, you're a small school in a rural mm-hmm. area and you have a group of seven girls building a full-size trebuchet and describing the physics. I mean, that hits like every single non-stereotype I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and and we we purposely, you know, we go out of our way. Uh, my staff and I, we, we meet on a weekly basis. 
um, all of my peers. And we're constantly saying, oh, what's standard? What's traditional about what we're doing? What are we comfortable with? Because we want to identify those things so that we can go after them and change them and just push ourselves and bring our students with us into an area of non-comfort. Because if we're in an area there and outside of our comfort zone, that's when we're truly learning. And we're developing those skills that I was looking for as an engineer with DuPont. Those skills will translate into building innovators, building the next generation of entrepreneurs. So what, regardless of what they want to do, they're going to have the skill set to be able to go out in this knowledge-based workforce and be able to do it with the confidence that they've got the skill to be able to do it. And that, that to me is, I think, what we as educators have to ultimately be focused on. It's not simply about filling in bubble sheets and, and passing tests and things like that. It's, are we preparing these students, these young people to go out and collaborate with and compete with anybody on the planet? One of the reasons I was interested in inviting you here onto the podcast is because I know that you guys are a North Carolina public school. Right. Uh, you're certainly in an underserved area, so you're not drawing from you know the the brilliant talent of you know some metropolitan area you know for your your students. So tell us a little bit about how you guys navigate some of the some of the. I don't, for, for lack of a better word, like the, the tests and the bubble sheets, how do you guys navigate the need to meet those requirements at the state level and still right. manage to keep a project-based curriculum? Because I know there are teachers out there that, that would love to do what you do, and, and they're lost. They don't know how to do that. Right. Well, so our approach is if you can focus on student engagement, if you can get students engaged in the process, then that is going to immediately translate into success. And you can put whatever performance metrics you want to look at. The, the fact that they are engaged in the process, that they're developing skills, they're developing confidence, that's going to move the needle more than trying to simply cover my back and go through all of the standards in a, some attempt to try to get them to do well on a test. So our focus isn't on the test at all. In fact, we vehemently oppose doing any kind of official test prep other than <laughs> the week before we'll remind them, all right, this is a multiple choice test. You haven't seen one all year, so this is how you do it. Uh, and just go through <laughs> those types of reminders. But knowing full well that all of our focus has been on ensuring that they know how to think and solve problems and collaborate and access and analyze information. All of that stuff is going to translate into an untangible set of skills that they're going to be able to take on those test days and do fine. So we don't worry about it. We know that our success is going to come because we focus on ensuring that these students in this rural area of Southern Appalachia have the skill set they need to step toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone, regardless of, of the, the funding that a district may have or otherwise. And I, I think it just takes with that vision and trusting the process, trusting that it's going to work. I mean, there's tons of research out there that shows when you engage students in things like PBL or problem-based learning or inquiry-based, it works. And yet there's tends to be a reluctance to let go of the formal test prep regurgitation model, which produces the type, I, I would submit, the type of graduate student you were talking about earlier, 
which knows a lot about that particular subject knowledge, but when it comes to application and transferring that knowledge, that's where the problem lies. So there are about four questions I want to ask. We'll just sort of take them one at a time. And the first one is more of a comment, and you can falsify it, uh, Mm because I know that you probably looked into the data on this one more. But you mentioned that engagement translates directly to success. There are research papers out on that? Yes. Uh, I'll probably just reach out by email and just ask you to give me a link or something for those, because I'd actually like people to read those and realize how important that really is. So I'm going to sidestep that and go on to the next one, because I just want to set the stage here. You guys are a full-fledged North Carolina public school. Right. We're a school of choice. We're an early college, so we sit on the community college campus. But we are a full public school uh, and held to the same accountability standards as, as any other public school in the state of North Carolina. And you guys are in a rural area. So remind us about the demographics. Like what do you what, – what can you tell us about the demographics of rural North Carolina there in Appalachia where you guys are? Right. Well, I think if I just describe rural Appalachia, most people bring a demographic to mind, and that is – very true here where where I live. So predominantly white, predominantly suffering from uh, economic depression in terms of the overall community. We've had a number of manufacturing facilities leave this area. We do fortunately have a couple of manufacturing facilities still here, but that reliance on, especially here in North Carolina, on textiles and furniture and so forth, those days are long gone. Uh, so we've got to be attuned to more of the the knowledge-based economy, just like everybody else. And just on the the point of rural, uh, it's not just here in North Carolina. If you if you look at what the uh, government reports that come out, 24% of students in the U.S. are in rural schools. 57% of districts in the U.S. are rural districts compared to sur- suburban urban. So, you know, a lot of attention gets paid to urban and suburban schools, rightly so. But I guess I'm I'm here to say that the rural schools also have a set of challenges to deal with and deal with the types of problems that we see, which, you know, are, aren't necessarily immune to the problems that, that everybody else sees across the country. And so you guys probably have students coming in who have... Uh, and I don't know how North Carolina treats this, but have like the school lunches and things like that. So right. you qualify under, what was that? Is that Title One? Is that how all that, right. is that the right. same in North Carolina? Exactly. And we we actually, our school, uh, we are, again, a school of choice, but we have a target population, schools that we, or students that we purposely go out and, and try to recruit. And that would be first-time college goers, because when they come to us, they're attending college as a freshman on the community college campus. Minority students, underrepresented students, students that have financial difficulties, and just in general that would not necessarily fit in a traditional environment. That's who we target. And just as an example, uh, last year of our entering class of 45 freshmen, 44 of whom met some type of criteria that that is on our target list. So we're not out there cherry picking the quote best and brightest. I hate that phrase anyway. We're taking students and regardless of their background, we're putting them in a position that they have the skills to succeed in life. And which it ultimately is, I think, the mission of any school. Uh, We just take it at a very, very serious level and do whatever we can to make it happen. 
All right, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna meddle a little bit. So okay. looking at the students that have graduated, do you guys track those students over the course of four, five, six years to see what they do after they graduate from the Tri County Early College uh, High School that you guys have? We do. Now, uh, this is our 10th year, so we don't have an extensive list of alums, but, uh, you know, and we started rather small, but we're building. And, and yes, but to answer your question, we do track how our alums are doing. So out of the students that are, are graduating, give me like a feeling for uh, how they perform versus other students who graduate from uh, maybe, maybe even other high schools there in, in the Murphy area. Sure. Well, let me say up front, I'm not going to <laughs> say any disparaging remarks about my colleagues because, uh, you know, every school has its own set of challenges and we just we'd have an opportunity here and, and we take it very seriously and, and have a mission to, to ensure every student that uh, leaves our doors is successful. So just in, in general, we've had, I think, for the past three years, 100 percent graduation rate. Uh, we have 100 percent college acceptance rate. We have an 87% college staying rate. I think that's wow. the last effect. Um, that, that's, like, that sounds like, I think that's above national average, isn't it? Yeah, Quite national. Bit, actually. Or, it's either national or North Carolina. I have to go back and double check, but it was somewhere around the, the 20 to 30%. So uh, pretty significant there. Now, because they're, our students are at an early college, they have the opportunity to leave with a two-year associate's degree. So that that then means that they have two years of college debt that they don't have to worry about, which obviously is a national issue that more schools and more districts need to really take a hard look at. And let's see, what other stats? I mean, test scores we do fine on at or above the uh, state averages. So our ACT scores are typically topping out. So you name a metric, we're rocking it. And I think it's not because we spend all our time focusing on test prep. It's because we put students in scenarios where we relate the curriculum to what they care about. And then they have choice and voice in how they respond to that and what types of projects they work on and how they ultimately succeed in that. So, you know, we want to ensure that they can leave here and again, do whatever they want to. If that's going to college, great. They're prepared to do that. If that's going straight into the workforce, as an entrepreneur or whatever, they're ready to do that. Equipping them so that they are indeed college and career ready. And that's not just words on a paper somewhere that's true and real and it has a face and it has a face of the students that we graduate. I like it. So you just gave me the advertisement for why in the world I wanted you on our podcast in the first place. <laughs> not, not because every teacher out there needs to jump in and switch to project-based learning in their classroom, but just right. that there's hope and it's possible and because we need to, I feel like there needs to be a national conversation about the relevance of every educational institution in our country. And we need to look very carefully at, are these institutions preparing life-ready, career-ready, workforce-ready students or, you know, citizens into the society? And I'm not saying that they, that we do have a problem or don't have a problem necessarily, but... My feeling, just you know, how we started our conversation here, is mm -hmm. that there is a shift that needs to occur, and you know that's not I don't have data behind that, but I think there's plenty of people out there, plenty of articles that I've read that there yep. it does say there's a need for a significant shift in how we perform education, and project-based learning, what you guys are doing, is possible, and it meets the metrics, 
it exceeds standards. And I just wanted to hear you say those words to give right. people hope that it's possible. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, our school is two uh, hand-me-down mobile units, otherwise known here in North Carolina as trailers. Uh, and then we have borrowed <laughs> classrooms on the college. Very graciously, they, they give us some college space for us to work in. And we're making it happen. So it's not about the facilities, the resources. It's about having a group of teachers who have a passion for wanting to see the students succeed and doing whatever it takes to make that happen. You guys have a big staff, right? Uh, a staff of six. <laughs> <laughs> but we meet, you know, we as an entire staff meet twice a week to ask ourselves, what are we doing? What can we do to, to make it better? Constant focus on continuous improvement, challenging the status quo. If we're doing something just for the exercise of doing it, we'll stop doing it. And assuming we have the, the license to do that, and, and we'll ask ourselves, what's in the best interest of the student? That's always the bottom line question. So regardless of where you are, the, the hope that you mentioned is, yes, you can raise your voice and say, yes, we can make a difference. I'm going to focus on things that work, and I'm going to implement them in my classroom, in my department, in my school, in my district, and just scale that excellence wherever you go. That then, I think, changes a public perception, which I think we can all agree on is not very favorable at the moment when it comes to education in general. And, and it's down to me as a teacher to do something about that. And, and I want to continue to elevate teaching as a profession so that it's recognized, not through you know, some other reason, it's through the excellence that I and my peers can exhibit. Is why it's called a professional group of folks who deserve everything they can get. Well, I probably have about another 20 or 30 questions, but I'm just going <laughs> to wrap up with the final two we always ask. Okay. In the digital age where students can go look stuff up, and you guys are project-based, so you're a little biased here, but in that environment where so much information is available, what does that term educated mean? Well, I think it goes back again to what you can do with the data. And, and I know I just listened to the podcast of Tony Wagner on your show, and he's one of my heroes. And I think he was, I'll get the quote wrong, but something about, you know, you, the world could care less about the knowledge. It's what you do with that knowledge. And that's, that to me is, is the, that a true education is what can I do as a student that in this environment do with that knowledge? All right, and so the last question, this is the sort of the, the philosophical question. What is the purpose of an education? And you guys have, a, you know, obviously your own mission there at Tri-County Early College. So what is your perspective? Why do we educate? Well, the, the reason we educate, at least as articulated in our mission, is to prepare a student to, to do whatever they want to in life and be able to thrive in that. If we're not doing that, then we're ultimately not meeting the needs of that individual student. So, yes, I understand that there are certain standards and whatnot, and we, we assure ourselves that we meet those. But that is the that's kind of the lowest common denominator. We've got to then carry that to say, okay, whoever you are, what are your specific goals and passions in life, and help ensure that we steer that person with a tailored, very focused, customized education to so that he or she can then do that and thrive in doing that. That's what, you know, puts a smile on my face every day when I see that I'm able to move them along on that path to ultimate success in what they care about. 
Well, I don't think we can end better than that. Thank you, Ben, for taking some time to talk to us about project-based learning in a context uh, in the public system where many people feel like it's difficult or maybe close to impossible. So if our listeners are interested in reaching out and getting in some information from you, uh, how would they do that? Probably the easiest way, I guess, would be through Twitter, um, at engineerteacher, one word. And I think you will probably have a bio on for the podcast, and it's got some additional contact information there if you want to send me an email or tweet or give me a call. Perfect. Thank you, Ben, so much for taking some time to talk to our audience today. Thank you, Steve. Enjoyed it. I am so excited about Ben's experience and the commitment of Tri-County Early College to bring project-based learning to rural Appalachia. If you're a teacher or a parent, I want you to know that project-based learning is not a pipe dream. It is a very real, very effective model for your school and for your kids. If you live near Murphy, near Atlanta, or in Southern California, Go to ttinvent.com, that's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T.com, and sign up for Inventor Camp this summer for a taste of project-based learning. It is a transformational experience where learning is both challenging and fun. Project-based learning prepares kids for life in ways that worksheets and lined paper can never prepare them. Join the revolution.